This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. With over 100,000 Russian troops amassed at the Ukrainian border, the world holds its breath at the prospect of war. Unfortunately, what's happening at the moment is the result of years of appeasement on the part of Donald Trump towards Vladimir Putin, which is now, strangely, playing center stage with voices from the far right siding with Russia over our Ukrainian ally. Ukraine is an incredibly important country. It's suffered probably as much or more as any country before and since World War II. It's a hinge point to the West between Russia uh, and Europe. It is in Europe. It's a country the size of France. And as Ned said over and over, uh, this rules-based order that we've had since World War II has kept the peace uh, since World War II. We are witnessing a strange thing here, folks. The macho men of the right, who could usually be counted on to angrily denounce communism, socialism, liberalism, and fucking ISM, have now become appeasers of the worst order. Their admiration for Putin and his authoritarian impulses are stronger than their desire to protect our democratic ally. I think there's a, a political sickness in this country that, you know, there was this poll recently that came out that 62% of Republicans support Putin over President Biden. You know, and that's just, it's really shameful. I, you're, you're, you know, Putin is someone who is willing to kill Americans. He's supported arms and support to the Taliban. He may have supported bounties against American soldiers. He's committed assassinations in Europe. He's bombed hospitals in Syria. He's undercut our elections and spread disinformation, anti-vax things. He has no love for Americans and actually no love for Republicans. And so all these people are doing is are playing a Russian narrative, which is an anti-American narrative. He wants to humiliate the United States and these people are helping him do it. And so in, in my sense, this is incredibly unpatriotic behavior. So at this point, NATO exists primarily to torment Vladimir Putin, who, whatever his many faults, has no intention of invading Western Europe. Vladimir Putin does not want Belgium. He just wants to keep his Western borders secure. That's why he doesn't want Ukraine to join NATO. The worst of the far-right media machine, like Fox News' Tucker Carlson, but also some of the more extreme members of the House GOP conference are pushing the idea that the United States basically is no business getting involved in Ukraine, with military force or otherwise. This follows on years of these shitheads building up Vladimir Putin and effectively rationalizing his actions along with his desire to reconquer Eastern Europe. This is the kind of political analysis Russia's state-controlled television apparently likes. The main channel in Moscow putting together this montage of lines from a favorite anchor. Please show us Tucker Carlson, the host says. He's the man playing out all the complaints against President Biden, she explains. But it's his defense of Russia's threat against Ukraine the Kremlin-backed channel now wants to highlight. Vladimir Putin does not want Belgium. He just wants to keep his Western borders secure. That's why he doesn't want Ukraine to join NATO. And that makes sense. Imagine how we would feel if Mexico and Canada became satellites of China. It's essentially what the Kremlin says. So no surprise, the studio guests agree. Excellent performance, exclaims this editor of a Russian national defense journal. We can only have solidarity with this view, he says. Stupid is as stupid does, I guess. This week, Tom Malinowski, a Democrat who represents New Jersey in the House, tweeted, 
My office is now getting calls from folks who say they watch Tucker Carlson and are upset that we're not siding with Russia in its threats to invade Ukraine and who want me to support Russia's reasonable positions. But I think some of my Republican colleagues have got to come face to face with the fact that one of their chief propagandists who's putting out this stuff to millions of their supporters every night is effectively taking Russia's side. In his column for the Daily Beast, conservative Matt Lewis laid into Republicans who have decided to take sides with Vladimir Putin against Ukraine, calling them posturing appeasers who are in the thrall of the Russian strongman. He's not going into Ukraine, okay? Just so you understand, he's not gonna go into Ukraine. Uh, you can mark it down, you can put it down, you can take it anywhere well, you want. he's already there, isn't he? Okay, well, he's there in a certain way. Ukraine's side and not Russia's side. Uh, it's a sincere question. If you're looking from the American perspective, side. no, but why? I mean, who's got the energy reserves? Who's who's the major player in world affairs? Who's the potential counterbalance against China, which is the actual threat? Why would we take Ukraine's side? Why wouldn't we have Russia's side? I, I don't, I'm totally confused. Well, clearly, Ukraine is a democracy. Uh, Russia is an authoritarian regime that is seeking to impose its will upon a validly elected democracy in Ukraine. And we're on the side of democracy. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I'm guessing for democracy in other countries, I guess. Getting right to the point, he compared them to British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, who was most notable for the Munich Agreement of 1938, which ceded parts of Czechoslovakia to Adolf Hitler. I want to say that the settlement of the Czechoslovakian problem which has now been achieved is, in my view, only the prelude to a larger settlement in which all Europe may find peace. As Lewis notes, choosing to side with Russia over Ukraine is causing a schism within the Republican Party and not to their credit. In one corner are the Reagan Republicans who don't trust Vladimir Putin, the ex-KGB agent, and who believes it's dangerous to allow regimes to invade their neighbors. In the other corner are the America Firsters who would sit on their hands if Russia invaded and occupied Ukraine. Wait a second, why is it disloyal to side with Russia, but loyal to side with Ukraine? They're both foreign countries that don't care anything about the United States. The columnists suggest that this change of heart, which was begun by the former president, represents a huge shift for the party that long despised Russia. There is a bear in the woods. For some people, the bear is easy to see. Others don't see it at all. Some people say the bear is tame. Others say it's vicious and dangerous. Since no one can really be sure who's right, isn't it smart to be as strong as the bear? If there is a bear. Citing Richard Hanania of the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology, who wrote, Russian opposition to LGBT triggers American elites more than anti-gay laws and practices elsewhere because Russia is a white nation that justifies its policies based on an appeal to Christian values, Lewis wrote. According to this worldview, hostility towards Russia is a proxy war against Christian conservatives in America, and it would be disproportionately fought by Christian conservatives from America. It's ironic that this isolationist strain is gaining traction. According to Gallup, 
the number of Republicans calling Russia an ally or a friend rose from 22% to 40% between 2014 and 2018, even as the right increasingly fetishes political machismo. Vladimir Putin polled higher than Joe Biden among Trump voters. A new economist YouGov poll shows that 19% of Trump supporters had a favorable view of Putin. Only 9% of Trump voters have a favorable view of President Biden. But why is this happening now? There are multiple reasons, including either grudging or explicit admiration for Vladimir Putin, whose dictatorial strongman persona exhibits many of the stereotypical attributes of masculinity. I would say it started quite a while ago, about a decade ago, when American right-wing organizations started reaching out, you know, like the World Congress of Families, other pro or anti-choice uh, organizations started reaching out to religious right-wing organizations in Russia and working with them. And it really hit a fever pitch under Trump because you had Trump talking about uh, Putin as a partner, as an equal, as somebody that we should have a good relationship with, that we should respect. Um, and that we shouldn't criticize. And what has developed in the last five or six years is basically this feedback loop. You either have the right wing, you know, putting out certain memes, tropes, storylines, and the Russian state press or trolls on social media amplifying that message. Uh, until it, you know, becomes more mainstream, or you have Russian trolls or Russian state media putting out tropes and memes and storylines and the right-wing press amplifying them. And now it's become basically this one feedback loop. Among the America first isolationist right, there's also the argument that Putin is fighting for Christian values, while our woke U.S. military is the armed wing of the Democratic Party, part of a leftist cabal indoctrinating our young people into godless Marxism. Recently, Trump proudly declared what's happening with Russia and Ukraine would never have happened under the Trump administration. Not even a possibility. Yeah, right, jackass. You were fucking impeached for trying to use Ukraine to dig up dirt on your potential presidential rival, Joe Biden. You tried to push Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to do us a favor and investigate Biden and his son, Hunter, all while holding up almost 400 million in crucial military aid. Remember that perfect phone call, you fucking asshole? I had a perfect phone call with the president of uh, Ukraine. Like, I mean, perfect. Remember when Bill O'Reilly pointed out to Trump that Putin was a killer, he demurred. There are a lot of killers, Trump said. You think our country's so innocent? So now we're in a position where the former president's foreign policy was based on his ability or inability to blackmail the Ukraines to do him a favor. And Putin is using this all to his maximum advantage. A lot of killers. We got a lot of killers. Why, you think our country's so innocent? But the crazy doesn't end there, folks. Marjorie Taylor Greene is floating the idea that President Biden only wants war because the Ukraine has dirt on Hunter Biden. Because Ukraine has the dirt on Hunter Biden, Ukraine has the dirt on Joe Biden, our president, and this is why we could have we could have many of our troops get killed in this war that Joe Biden wants to have happen. We are now drowning in a stew of Trump's making 
after four years of silently watching or supporting Trump complimenting the Russian president, tweeting, I always knew he was very smart, and dissing the US intelligence agencies on issues like Russian election interference. President Putin says it's not Russia. I don't see any reason why it would be. What are they to do now that Russia has 100,000 troops at the Ukrainian border? Fearless leader Trump has predictably done little more than blast Biden's so-called weakness, which is his all-time favorite word, maybe after loser. That's some sophisticated foreign policy there. He might as well take his dick out and wag it at the Russian forces, but we all know that's why he's got in his shorts is the size of a dipping carrot. It's a fucking mushroom. The loudest voices warning against American military involvement if Russia invades Ukraine belong to the seditious House Freedom Caucus, whose America First ethos is borrowed entirely from Tucker Carlson talking points. We have no dog in the Ukraine fight. Not one American soldier should die there, and not one American bullet should be fired there, said Representative Paul Gosar, a controversial Arizona Republican, and in my estimation, a fucking jerk-off. Hillbilly Elegy author and Ohio GOP Senate candidates J.D. Vance tweeted, Billions spent on the Kennedy School, grand strategy seminars, and the Georgetown School of Foreign Service have bought us an elite that about to blunder us into a Ukrainian war. Here's what they aren't telling you. This isn't about Ukraine or American lives. It's about protecting the larger authoritarian axis that includes Trumpism. The Washington Post Greg Sargent wrote, something more pernicious is going on. The Carlsonian stance is perhaps better understood as alignment with a kind of right-wing international, a loose international alliance of authoritarian nationalists who despise liberal internationalist commitments. Even Dummy Don Jr. has gotten into the act and offered his nuanced opinion on the current state of Russo-American relations in this now viral clip where he dismissed the possibility that the Putin regime was about to launch a cyber attack against the United States. I get to read reports saying that intelligence is saying that Russians may be launching a cyber attack on America. I don't think so. I imagine that's our people lying to us to try to instigate us getting into another war to distract from the incompetence. Do you think our posture in Ukraine has anything to do with his corrupt son raking in millions over the year, and this is the way to cover it up? So many questions here. First being, when are they gonna get this kid into fucking rehab? Secondly, who is giving Don Jr. intelligence report? The mind shudders. But this is the level of thought that is going into how we deal with Russia as a geopolitical ally and a large swath of the Republican Party, as well as Fox News, continues to carry this message. This is dangerous stuff, folks. Putin was watching on January 6th. His goal has always been to sow dissent and fracture alliances, first in Europe, then within the United States. His interference within the 2016 election must be seen within this larger prism. He is part of what wrought the larger MAGA movement, and in many ways, we have Putin to thank for Trump. He's now repaying that favor. God fucking help us.
for the main event. My next guest on Mea Culpa is David Korn. As the Washington bureau chief for Mother Jones magazine and an on-air analyst for MSNBC, Korn is one of the preeminent progressive journalists covering politics today. His scoops often become bombshells and his newsletter, This Land, on Substack has become a must-read for both pundits and politicians alike. He joins me today on Mea Culpa during another day of dizzying political turmoil. From the latest January 6th committee subpoenas to the retirement of Justice Stephen Breyer and Russian aggression, we're going to cover it all. So consider this a masterclass in what's going on, folks. You won't hear it any better than here on Mea Culpa. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, David, so with Justin Stephen Breyer announcing his retirement, President Biden finally has the opportunity to nominate his own pick for the Supreme Court bench. How nasty of a fight do you think this will be? And do you believe it will help to, let's say, galvanize the party going into the midterms? And finally, should we be concerned that a Kristen Cinema or Joe Manchin could once again sabotage this as well? Yeah, well, starting with the last point, the answer is yes. I mean, they need every member of the Democratic caucus, assuming they don't have any Republican um, votes. And so that gives any one member a veto power. Uh, Biden did say during the campaign that he would appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court. So uh, I think we can assume that's what is going to happen. And so that, you know, creates a whole set of dynamics about, you know, what, what's going to happen. You know, I, th- I think, you know, in terms of the of black Americans and others and, and maybe, you know, f- female Americans, I mean, that would be a, a good thing. It's a good it's a good barrier to 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 burst through. And there are a, a lot of not a lot, but there are a sufficient number of excellent choices in, in, in that demographic category that you can find a wonderful pick uh, and no one can say it's just affirmative action. But I do believe conservatives and Republicans will make that point. They'll try to say this person's just being picked on the basis of color and gender and not, you know, remember what happened with Clarence Thomas back in, uh, in those days. And I also believe they are going to probably try to make this about critical race theory, although it won't be, has nothing to do with it, but they have seen the benefit of racializing uh, elections and issues and feeding white grievance and white resentment. Look what Trump was doing just a few days ago at 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 his rally in Arizona. He was out there saying that white people are being discriminated against in terms of vaccines, that black people get them before white people, which is not true. And and these days, anyone who wants a vaccine in almost any part of the country can get one. You know, the problem is enough that not enough people are still getting vaccinated. So a a core part of of their strategy is racism, racial resentment, whatever you want to call it. And if a black woman indeed is is, is appointed for this position, I imagine they will be out there trying to find a way to exploit that, 
to play up and play to and exploit whatever idea of white grievance they think is out there. And then how nasty do you think this fight's going to get? Don't forget, David, this is a three-part question. Yeah, yeah. This is like this is like Jeopardy. Yeah. <laughs> For $20. I mean, I, is there anything these days that isn't nasty? Let's put it that way. I mean, I, you know, one of the one of the one of the possible um, picks out there is, is, a, is a judge named um, Brown Jackson, and she used to be a public defender. Now, who do public defenders defend? Criminals. Uh, I can see if she is the pick of you know the opposition, whether it's the senators themselves or you know right wing interest groups going out there and finding everybody she ever defended. You know, instead of one Willie Horton, maybe there are a dozen Willie Hortons out there. And, you know, if she, you know, depending where she did this, you know, the defendants, her client, her clientele might be predominantly one race or another. And so I, I could see that becoming incredibly ugly. And so that they, you know, would not be trying necessarily to stop her but they will be trying to send a message that the Democrats are soft on crime and, you know, the way they you know try to use the Black Lives Matter movement against Democrats. And when there's a small number of people saying defund the police, which are, which is not being said by Democratic candidates, but then trying to tar the party with that. So if they pick this particular judge or otherwise, they will try to weaponize this fight because it's high profile takes a lot of oxygen and um it is you know it, it can be a platform not for winning or losing this particular fight but for other types of demagoguery so and what about this notion because i see this all over the place now i mean every time you watch any program it doesn't make a difference they keep saying that this could be something that galvanizes the base for the Democrats, for Joe Biden, yeah. going into the midterm elections. Do me a favor, discuss that with my listeners. How yeah. is that even possible? How is this all of a sudden the, 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 big, the big idea that's going to now galvanize, you know, the well, way I that, mean, say, take, the United States was yeah. when, you know, we were attacked September 11th? Yeah, take a step back. And that is, you know, the historic trend is that in a midterm election, the opposition party, the party that's opposed to the, whoever has the White House, does better. You know, there are a lot of reasons to look at that. It's like it's, some people might say it's it's a correction. The party, the country goes one way, and then voters say, well, let's put a check on this, um, as they did with Donald Trump in, in 2018. Uh, it could just be that the, the party that wins a presidential race is really exhausted. It's almost like one reason why a team that wins wins the World Series usually does not come back and win again because they've played later than the other team into the season. They're kind of <laughs> physically beat up and it's just hard to sustain the excitement. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons why this might be. So, but you start with the presumption that, okay, right now, uh, you know, the Democrats are facing a historical um, obstacle. And then you look at, okay, and often in politics, what motivates people more, unfortunately, than hope or positive stuff is negative stuff. So if you're so if the people you hate are in power, that sometimes mobilizes the haters more than the people who are looking at the people in power and saying, OK, 
I don't have to worry too much. My team is, you know, is in power. So then the question always becomes in these off year elections, how does the party that holds the White House galvanize, as you say, or make a case to its own people? You guys really have to come out. You know, it's it's not a presidential year. You got to, you know, you're not when you're not voting for Biden again. You're not voting against Trump again. You got to come out and vote for members of Congress and and members of the Senate. And you know that is a bit of a lift. And now, so the question becomes: Okay, there are parts of the base out there. You know, the Democratic Party has you know more support from women than men. Has you know disproportionate support amongst uh, Black Americans. So a fight like this you know, could you know, show show people what you know, the party is indeed, that Biden is indeed on their side. And, but more importantly, it could be a, a, a counter force if whoever the nominee is it turns into an ugly fight. You know, fights galvanize both sides. Like they just, you know, they get people worked up. And so if you if the Republicans out there, Republican senators, it will be, you know, senators start bashing at this nominee it could create a, a backlash from Democratic voters. So there are different ways this could happen. Um, by and large, uh, you know, I don't think politics works along the lines of having a silver a silver uh, bullet or a magic bullet. You know, it's just, you know, you, you, this one event is going to make a difference. It's going to, you know, the Democrats really need to spend the next, you know, what do we have, nine months in a few in a few days, you know, making the case that, okay, we have a choice in November. The choice is going to be Democratic control of Congress or Republican control of Congress. You have Democratic control of Congress. Maybe you have a shot at paid family leave. Maybe you have a shot at expanding, getting universal pre-K, getting lower drug prices, expanding um, uh, uh, Medicaid and Medicare to cover dental. If you have the Republicans in there, that's not going to happen. You know that because they 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 say they don't they're not for any of these things. So yes, the Democrats have not been able to deliver all this yet because they don't have a big enough majority. But that's the fight that has to be made and the argument that has to be made over the next ten months. And it's not going to, I think, turn on any one bill being passed or not passed on any one nomination or any one political fight. So David, let me ask you this, and this is not something that we can read about. It's just something that you feel. What's the big fear of a black woman on the bench? Because I'm, I mean, it's, I understand if you're a white supremacist. <laughs> I, this I fully understand, right? It's simply, you know, it's abhorrent as a thought to them. But for those of us who are not white supremacists, for those of us that believe in diversity and racial equality, I just don't understand the fear of a black woman on the bench so long as that she's properly qualified. I mean, do you really think that any of the people that Joe Biden is going to nominate is worse of a choice than someone like Brett Kavanaugh or Amy Comey Barrett? No, no. How come how come you didn't see how come you didn't see black people turning around and saying, "Well, we don't want we don't want an Amy Comey Barrett on the bench." Right. You know, I I, I the question to me is even deeper than that. I mean, you know, the country in 2008 elected Barack Obama, and it seemed like that point in time, uh, it was uh, an action of progress. You know, we broke a barrier. And even I remember John McCain, 
you know, who he beat, and, I, and other Republicans saying, well, you know, that wasn't my candidate, but I'm still proud of the country. I'm still proud of the country because we broke uh, a, a discriminatory barrier here. And, you know, uh, and, and given where we were a couple decades earlier, it's something quite stunning about this. Uh, it seems to me that Obama's election uh, showed us that there were still deep wells of just outright racism. I mean, it's just, you know, it's I, for some people I know it's hard to believe, but just that there is racism, there is white supremacy, whatever you want to call it. And it was, you know, tribalism, racial tri- tribalism. Uh, and a lot of the reaction to him on, on the on the right in conservative circles, I thought, was, you know, was driven by or tainted by or tinged by or uh, amplified by by racism. Not everybody. Some people just didn't like his policies. I get it. But I think there was a lot of that there. And so where we are, I think, on the country now racially, you know, you see what you saw what happened with the Black Lives Movement. And one can criticize or not criticize different aspects of it and what people say about it. But there were, you know, still forces out there and, you know, and we, and, and mainstream politics saying, you know, Republican and conservative politics saying it was a Marxist force, you know, that, you know, that they're anti-American and, 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 and not recognizing, you know, the, 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 the issues of race that they were raising, you know, police uh, violence and abuses being just one of them. So I think it would, you know, looking back over the last, you know, five, six years, Michael, I think we just have to be prepared that the opposition is not going to be necessarily one based in rationality uh, and complaining, you know, uh, that she's not qualified enough or whatever, or they don't like her opinions. I think part of it, assuming again, it's a black woman, it's going to be racially driven by people who believe that if a black person gains, it's bad for white people or that black people have, you know, are being, you know, being, you know, they're being unfairly treated because of favoritism towards black people, whatever it might be. Uh, that is going to, uh, I don't think we can escape that now. I mean, just looking back at how the leader of the Republican Party, uh, who you once worked for, just makes racist comment after, after racist comment, and it doesn't hurt him. He gets no criticism from his party, and the crowd cheers. So it's when, gross. I mean, it is. It's gross. just so. It, it it's is. so gross. I mean, tell tell me because you know, uh, I mean, you worked for all these years. You know, what do you think he thinks about when it comes to 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 race and and using it politically? Anything that he could use for a political advantage, he's willing to do, and he does it with impunity. He does it with almost a sense of glee, which may sound crazy, but in essence, it's no different than the white supremacists that were walking in Charlottesville screaming that Jews will not replace us. Um, that's a real that's a real problem. Can I just say um, one thing on that point? I don't want to replace them. So they should know that. I don't want to be you. <laughs> right. You know. I mean, and it's again, th- that's just Donald. He will use anyone or anything in order to obtain an advantage for himself right. over someone else. It wouldn't make a difference whether it was using David Pecker as we promoted misinformation and disinformation about people like Marco Rubio when we talked right. about him being uh 
high on drugs with a bunch of other guys naked in a swimming pool oh, when we turned that. around yeah, and yeah. we had well yeah when we had Ted Cruz uh in the crosshairs of the Donald gun um when we ended up doing what we did uh you know with his father yeah. um, mm-hmm. next to Lee Harvey Oswald with the allegation that he killed John F Kennedy or that he was involved in it I mean yeah. nothing matters to him there is no dumpster that's deep enough that would insult his yeah. um his character See, or his he, and values he, and he understands you know that there you know while some of us were naive and thought that racism was fading in this country he seems to have underst- to understand that actually there's a lot that's still there whether it's you know, the confederate flag whether it's birtherism with Obama, whatever, he, you know, you know, either, you know, took a stab at it and got lucky or sensed that 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 was still there. So um, I believe, you know, David, you're 100 percent. David, you nailed it on the head. Um, And I think it's a point that's worth interrupting you on what he saw as a result of birtherism is the fact that there were enough people in America and he called them the silent majority. There were enough people in America that still had these suppressed feelings. They were quiet about them because it wasn't fashionable mm-hmm. to be an overt racist. Yeah. Donald made it fashionable. He made it funny. He made it acceptable, right? When he starts talking about, you know, um, this shit at rallies and people are cheering him on and laughing and he's playing to the crowd. He got that all based upon the volume of letters and emails and tweet responses uh, when he turned around and he questioned President Obama's birth um, location. Mm -hmm. And that's what basically put him onto that path. But David, let me ask you this. Right now, the Wisconsin GOP has broken out into open warfare after Trump blasted their draft election bill and the conspiracy theorists have taken over the party. Now, a recent Vice article reads, and I'm going to quote, accusations of slander, leaked documents, fake news pushed by a right-wing conspiracy website, staff forcibly reassigned, Angry warnings from former President Donald J. Trump. Now, you recently tweeted, this is wild stuff. And how Wisconsin goes, so too the whole country goes. If you'd be kind enough, explain to my listeners what's happening there. Unpack this for them and how this bodes for the rest of the nation. Yeah, I, I should say that Vice article was written by a friend of mine named Cameron Joseph. And and, and I'm not... An, I read it, but I'm not an expert. But what you know, what's happening is they're 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 having a state law, you know, being debated in Wisconsin, an election law governing their elections, and you know the law is being you know this is a fight amongst Republicans was was being drafted by Republicans, and you know it included you know issues about what when to use drop boxes, when not to use drop boxes, you know absentee ballots, and all, all these sort of things, and some Republicans and. This might have even been a questionable or, or baseless interpretation. Thought that the that the other Republicans were making it easier for people to vote, 
and that there was a conspiracy here against Donald Trump, that they were doing this on purpose so that once again, an election could be stolen from Republicans and from Donald Trump. And so they've had this intonison of civil war out there of recrimination with Trump weighing in. Wisconsin is obviously a key state. It's close state. It was close last few presidential elections. It has a tight Senate race uh, uh, coming up. It will be close again in the next presidential election. So what happens in Wisconsin really is, is should be of concern to everybody across the country. But it gets to the you know to this larger issue that right now in the aftermath of uh, the 2020 election and, and and Trump's claims, false claims of the election being stolen and being conspiracies against him, election fraud, you have Republicans at the state level trying to take over control of the basically the voting the vote counting mechanism you know we've known for the last few years republicans have tried to suppress voter you know voting and made voter registration tough and cut back on how you know voting places and just you know because they believe a smaller electorate is better for them bigger the, the electorate um, usually benefits the democrats so they've been doing that but now in the, in, the, in the last year, since, you know, um, the last election, they have tried to, you know, win secretaries of state contests across the, across the country. They are trying to get people to be precinct workers. They're trying to change the laws so that state legislatures, uh, particularly in places that have Republican majorities now, have more say over the final certification of the vote. So this is happening everywhere. And in some ways, you know, you know, democracy advocates are saying that what happened after the 2020 election was a bit of a, an experiment for Trump and Republicans. They saw what they could do and what they couldn't do to try to overturn the election results and are now, with that information, trying to figure out, OK, where can we gain, you know, through passing new bills, legislation and changing the rules, we can gain more control. One good example was. You remember you know, Georgia, another key tight state, uh, passed a new uh, voting bill that had some of these new uh, alterations in, in the electoral system down there. And one gave the state legislature, which is run by Republicans, more, more control over the county election boards. You know, each county had their own election board that set the rules for how people vote in the county. And they... You know, earlier this year, or last year, in the middle of 2021, the state Republican legislators threw out some of the board members in different counties and put in basically Republicans who changed the rules, including making it harder to vote by absentee ballot, having fewer polling places. So this is already happening in Georgia. This is what they want to do in Wisconsin, and it's happening in other states Everywhere, like in, in Arizona, I wrote about this uh, a week or two back. Uh, there's a secretaries of state of state. There's a secretary of state race. Trump has endorsed a state legislator named Mark Fincham, who's a big big lie champion. He was also at the Capitol on January 6. He was there. I'm not sure. You know, there's no evidence he went inside it, but he was there, and he's also a supporter of QAnon. So the guy who is friendly and supportive of QAnon, he was a QAnon rally in October, might be in control or in charge 
of the state election system in Arizona next time. Crazy? So this too, crazy is, is the understatement of the day. And the reason that they're doing this is twofold. First, something that I talk about a lot on not just this podcast, but also when I'm on television, Donald picked up from Stalin something very, very important. And that's the more you repeat something and you create the slogan out of it, the more people will start to repeat it. And then the more it will come true. Now, the and that's why I think it's really worth repeating at this moment, something that Donald truly believes, and it's a principle of Vladimir Putin, that it doesn't matter who you vote for. All that matters is who's counting the vote. And this is something I've been talking about even before my House Oversight Committee hearing. When I turned around, I said that if Donald Trump loses, that there will never be a peaceful transfer of power. I understand what's going on in this lunatic's mind. Now, couple that with technology. And it happens to be something that there are quite a few guys that are surrounded, that, you know, surround Donald that are quite tech savvy. And here's what they figured out. Based upon technology today, you're able to pinpoint exact locations where Republicans are, you know, their majority or the Democrats. And by gerrymandering those areas, they're able to increase the number of Republicans in that specific area for, we'll call it lower level offices, whether it would be a city council, an electoral board, etc. They're not really worried about city council. They want the electorate. They want those electoral boards to be Republican controlled, because then what they'll do is they'll make the determination that, well, this ballot is invalid simply because it was mailed in and was mailed in from this specific location. And, or it doesn't have a proper, you know, um, signature that they claim doesn't match the, you know, legitimate signature of the of the voter. And whatever it is that they can do, they could actually change the elections. It's why you see with Vladimir Putin, when he runs for the presidency, he has a 92 percent favorability rating and he wins usually by this. It's not even a landslide. It's a fucking ass kicking. Yeah, no, I, I I think you're right, and and we I think we saw after the last election that you know they tried to do what they could by f- putting pressure on the Justice Department to try to, to declare that the election was fraudulent. That they talked to the Michigan state legislators to try to overturn the certification there. He called Georgia and said, find me 11,700, whatever it was, more votes. And it was kind of, okay, what can I do? Ad hoc. Here, I'll try this. I'll try this. I'll try that. You know, Rudy Giuliani said this. Sidney Powell said that. He Someone wrote a draft executive order for a national emergency. John Easton said you can get Pence to do this. You know, it was all these all, all this flurry of action. But I, you know, and, you know, they came close in some of these in, in some of these ways. But afterward, you know, to, to your point, I think, you know, whether it was him or others in the party or people around him, they got much more methodical about it. We, you know, you know, we, we don't want to be scrambling. next. Basically, they said, we don't want to be scrambling next time. We want to control the levers. As, you know, we want to gain control of these levers 
in far in advance so that when it comes time to pull them, it's not a big deal. It's not a problem. We're not scrambling. We're not saying who who does this, who does that. Steve Bannon is out there with his three-hour-a-day podcast telling Trumpers to go become precinct workers. You know, volunteer, uh, get into, you know, be poll watchers, whatever. And you have also, we always saw DeSantis is, did this, and who, I forget the other governor. They, they're creating special election police forces. We already have police forces. There always there already are ways to prosecute election fraud. And what they're doing is, you know, it's not they're going to be, I think, arresting people on the day of the of the vote. They are discouraging people. They're passing laws, creating these police forces. So if you want to go out there and register votes, and there are all these new rules out there, and the penalties are really high if you don't meet them, you may say, screw it. I'm not going to go out and and register votes because I might get arrested. Or if there's a question like, am I eligible or not because I moved, because I had been in jail and I'm not a, a felon anymore, and they said I could vote, but now they're saying maybe not. All these things are out there to disincentivize people, to get them scared. It's intimidation, you know, and it's, you know, they used to, you know, have the Klan literally at polling places throughout the South saying, yeah, you sure you want to vote? Yeah, well, yeah, you just walk down the block. And yeah, or, yeah, or beating, or beating the shit out of them, yeah. and you know, in order to stop because they know who they were going to vote for. Yeah, and now they're doing this, you know, a similar thing and saying, well, you can vote, maybe you'll get arrested, or you can register voters, but if you don't follow the rules, maybe you end up in jail. Who knows, you know? And so they're doing all these things, you know. It's it's multi level, and the one thing that you know, you know, Trump has managed to do is to basically send the signal to people throughout the party to to explore all these options. So it's not thing that he needs to coordinate or have a big operation himself to do. You know, it's like, okay, it's, you know, it's not too difficult for people locally to figure this out. And now people are going to get mad. It's not like I'm comparing him to, to ISIS, but that's what ISIS does. ISIS says, everybody, you know what we want. Go out there and do it yourself. Find your own plans, right? That way. Yeah, you know, David. You know, David. You know what they're doing? They're building a playbook every single day. That's what they're doing. Yeah. It's what we did at the Trump Organization. We're building a playbook. It's what I said to these re- these Republicans when I testified before the House Oversight Committee. And I said, to, I know what you're doing. I know the play that you're trying to run. I wrote the fucking playbook. You're not going to run the playbook on me. And that's why I was able to ignore them and do whatever, you know, what I needed to do in order to get the truth out. But I want to ask you this, David. The evidence against Rudy Giuliani with these sham electors is fucking startling. I mean, Rudy Giuliani, we could, he himself, as just an individual, is startling. I mean, America's mayor turned into fucking joke. But if what he did is not a crime, then they need to make it a crime and immediately. Do you think Rudy will ever see the inside of a courtroom? And if so, for which crime? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I I, I do think that that this stuff is being investigated things you know as you, you know as you know often do move slowly and there is i mean I, I i would i would hope that the justice department is doing a really good investigation of of these fraud 
electors certifications fraudulent that were forged. And I would say that I think it's probably a good thing for the Republic that the bar is relatively high to prosecute a former president or his aides. Now, everybody, we all say everybody's equal under the law. Everyone should be treated the same. And I, I, that's an important principle. At the same time, you know, in order to prevent an outright civil war or political civil war in this country, I don't think there's anything wrong with the Justice Department being really, really careful and cautious, as long as it's doing its job, and saying, okay, if we're going to prosecute the last administration, people associated with it, we're going to make sure we have an airtight case. You know, there's all, as you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of prosecution, prosecutorial discretion, right? And all, all across the board. And we, politics is not supposed to be a part of that, but we all know it is. And to a certain degree, that sometimes is not bad. But uh, so um, so you look at what's happening in Georgia, right, with the Fulton uh, County DA, who's just gone to a grand jury. She's, you know, she's been taking a long time, it seems, to deal with what looks to a lot of people to be an easy case against Donald Trump for, you know, election interference. When he said, called up and said, give me these number of votes. Um I don't know why it's taking this. In my mind, I'm not, you know, a prosecutor. Within a year, you should either be able to make a case or move on, and say we've determined this is not a, a crime that we can win a prosecution on. But for whatever reason, it's taken a time. But she just took a major step, convening. You know, you know, convening a grand jury is a big deal. You have to have some sense. That you that the grand jury is going to see the case the way you see it, which there there is a possible criminal prosecution here. So um, if I were him, I'd be really worried about this. They took a long time to get to this. That's an indication that they were exceedingly careful and cautious. So I assume that Merrick Garland is doing the same. You know, we saw the sedition charges against the Oath Keepers. That took a year. Yeah, but these are, but David, these are all low level people. You know, like like me. You know, you turn around and you said, oh, it's not so bad, right? It's not so bad as long as it's not you, right? These oath keepers, the head, this guy Rhodes, he turned around and he goes, we went there because we were asked to be there. I know. I and know. we were asked to be there by who? By Donald fucking Trump. Well, this. Who turned around then said, I'll meet you over there at the Capitol. I mean, what bothers well, me is, yes, I agree. Before you start putting anyone in prison, I don't care if it's the president yeah. and I don't care if it's if it's, you know, the guy, you know, me. It doesn't make a difference. Everybody should be treated equally under the law. That's the way the Constitution is written. Right. No one is above the law. And if the Democrats are going to continue to use that line, then they better fucking stand behind it. Well, because if no is, one is above it, the law, Donald Trump should already have been indicted. His kids Don, Ivanka, Jared, Eric, Laura Trump, all of them should have already been indicted. And what bothers me the most is as we sit here and we talk about Merrick Garland, we talk about, you know, Fulton County DA, we talk about all the various different litigation that is now um, troubling Donald, right, and his company and Mm -hmm. others around him. The case, for example, in, in Georgia... What's really putting Rudy on his heels 
is not the Justice Department. They're sitting there scratching their ass. Oh, you know, uh, I know, you know, we took his stuff, yada, yada, yada. Who cares? The case that's really fucking him up is that civil case by Dominion for the well, billion plus dollars to which he doesn't have. So whether he goes to prison or not, he's going to be financially fucking ruined for the rest of his life, no matter if, no matter how much money he could ever make. And the reason he's doing what he's doing is because he's not making money. But no matter how much money that this guy could ever make, they're just, they're going to have a civil judgment against yeah, that's, him that's for a, over a billion dollars. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good point. I mean, there's a tremendous vulnerability there with him, Cindy Powell, and others who have been, you know, sued. I know one of the lawyers handling the case and uh, who actually sued Mother Jones, and they're very good. We won the case. They lost. But they're, but, but they're very good lawyers, and it's a very clear case. So I think you're right. I think there's, you know, the justice, there's criminal justice, which you have a lot of experience with, and there are other forms of justice. You just spoke about civil justice there, which with, 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 with Rudy, the, 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 the guys, and they were guys, who wrote our Constitution believed in political justice. And that was what impeachment was supposed to be about. And when they wrote the Constitution, they did not envision a system that would be dominated by uh, partisanship and political parties. They could not envision it. They were political parties. They were not as hard and fast as as they are now. And, you know, you know, to tell tell people to go out there and start, you know, march to the Capitol and then, you know, not be able to, um, you know, and, and you know, and, and, to, and, and then to say after the fact, well, I did nothing criminally wrong because I didn't tell them to go inside and beat people up and try to kill Mike Pence. Well, that's a criminal legal argument. But the remedy for that was supposed to be impeachment. And, then, and to me, with Trump on January 6th, and this just keeps coming, I keep coming back to this point again and again and again. Okay. Give him every metaphor in the world. Fight like hell. Well, we all say we're going to fight like hell. That doesn't mean violence. You know, just give him the benefit of every single doubt you can. I didn't know they were going to do this. Okay, when I said Mike Pence do this, I got good legal advice. Give him every benefit of the doubt. When the U.S. Capitol was being attacked, when hundreds of American law enforcement officers were being attacked, he did nothing. Not a Zippo. He sat there and the testimony that we're going to see eventually at the hearings will be that he enjoyed it, that he thought it was good for him. This is going to help him overturn the election. This is Daryl. 187 minutes. He did yes. nothing. Nothing. And you know, this is dereliction of duty. This is non-performance. You know, you know, from labor law, you know, from your law, that if people don't do their jobs, you can fire them. And you should fire them. And why, you know, and how he managed to survive within the Republican world and the Republican base by sitting there watching TV while this is happening. That's why there's impeachment. And that's why, as Jamie Raskin so eloquently argued, that you can, you can impeach a president after, you know, his term in office is done. So he is so smart. Yeah, I mean, Jamie is just he's, one, he's my neighbor, one he's smart friend. cookie. He, he is. And because otherwise, as he said during that second impeachment, there's a January exception after the election when they're lame duck. They can do whatever they want if you say, if you can't impeach them 
by January 20th. So, well, um, look, we're, David, so, we're, we're talking about when we're talking about some real serious issues right now that our country has to face. And I want to ask you this, because Newt Gingrich had a recent comment on Fox about jailing the January 6th committee members, um, you know, has rightfully, I mean, rightfully stirred up significant outrage. When I heard it, I couldn't believe that it was Newt Gingrich because I've met Newt. He is a smart guy, and this has to be one of the fucking craziest, autocratic, fascist, you know, uh, dictatorial comments I've ever heard come out of any member of, you know, of Congress or former member. I mean, this is just insane. How concerned are you about reprisals from the GOP should they retake the majority? And how far do you think that they'll actually go? Do you think that we'll see Biden impeached and lawmakers then subpoenaed? Or is this just bluster to feed the base? And, you know, one additional question that I want to ask about that. The GOP will then end up subpoenaing lawmakers. Why would any lawmaker in their right mind appear for a subpoena? Why would they give any information when the Republicans have shown with disdain that they do not have to do shit and that there's no repercussions. I mean, I, I think I think this is a very important question. I've written about this a few times in the last uh, month or two, that if the Republicans take control of Congress, you know, they'll make Benghazi look like a Tea Party, the Benghazi investigations. Yep. You know, they will yep. investigate everything. You know, they'll go back to Hunter Biden. They'll go back to... Uh, uh, to Trump and, and Ukraine and, and Russia and say that this was all a deep state you know, you know conspiracy against him. They will go after uh, reporters. They'll go after people like me who, who you know, reported on some of the Russian interference. They'll go after Robert Mueller. You know, they will call people in from the from, from his investigation. They will, you know, it will, you know, anything about Hillary and 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 Bill Clinton and and anything regarding, as I said, Hunter Biden or any other any other Biden, um, it will be nonstop reprisal. And you know, and if and if Trump has his hand in any of this, rest assured, Obama will be on that list. He and Michelle as well. Of course. I mean, I you know you know you know you know you know him better than I do. But I've I've written a bunch of times now that I think one of the key elements in Trump's, you know personality, one of the key motiva- motivations for him is revenge, 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 retribution. Um, so he obviously he has a list. He's checking it more than twice, maybe twice every damn hour about who's on it, who's not on it, uh, his enemies list. And they, you know, and the other Republicans, Fiona Hill, you know, Vindman, anybody you know, who has caused them discomfort, Mitt Romney, that, you know, they're going to make sure if, you know, Liz Cheney, even you know, whether she, even if she's not in Congress, whatever they are going to go after all these people. There are conspiracy theories out there involving me and uh, and an FBI officer, which are untrue, and they will go after him again and maybe try to drag me into it. So I think there will be a tremendous amount of retribution, and you know it doesn't surprise. I mean, I mean it doesn't surprise me that Newt. Gingrich said that, but it is incredibly abhorrent. The one reason it doesn't surprise me is that, uh, you know, throughout the 2016 campaign, the biggest chant at any of the rallies was lock her up. Not like 
let's investigate and prosecute and then come up with a just punishment, which makes a bad chant. It was lock her up. No due process. It was just total tribal um, animosity. And I remember at one of the debates, um, I, I, I maybe it was Las Vegas. I was in the spin room afterwards. We'll go back to Rudy here for a second. And there had been sort of a locker up moment at the debate or recently. I don't remember what precipitated the question, but I saw Rudy Giuliani. I went up to him. I said, Rudy, you used to be the number three guy at the Justice Department. You were a U.S. attorney. You went up against the mob and inside of the traitors. You did a great, you know, great work there. You really know the legal system. Why? Can, how can you defend people chanting lock her up? You know, no due process. No, you know, how, you know, how do you defend that as someone who worked and lived and represented and we thought represented well our criminal justice system? And his face turned beet red. It looked like a vein was going to pop. And he said to me, she should be locked up. She should be locked up. And he like had a tantrum like a kid. I felt like I was talking to an eight-year-old. You were. And he could not address the question on a intellectual level. I was just, I, I was very polite. I wasn't being confrontational. And he just went bat crap crazy. And so this, this is a, a virus that, that Trump has brought, you know, you know has you know, in, into, injected or has amplified within on the right, within the Republican Party. So they think it's cute to say lock her up. So if you say that, then okay, it's not a far stretch for everybody who has supported that, which Newt Gingrich has by supporting Trump, to then say, you know, say what he said uh, this past, you know, past weekend. So um, it's, it's just the natural extrapolation of the whole lock her up BS. And you think that they're going to really, first of all, I too believe that they're going to take the majority. And my biggest fear is that literally the day after they take that majority, they're going to invoke impeachment. Um, they're going to file articles of impeachment. And then if, you know, it's going to be much more difficult, uh, you know, to get it passed through the Senate the same way that Trump escaped it. But this is, this is fucking terrible. And you're right. It's going to go right back to Hunter Biden. It's going to start going to all the things Biden. It's going to turn around and talk about his COVID response. It's going to talk about Afghanistan. I mean, that's why the Republicans have been harping, whether it was Fox News, whether it was OAN, whether it was Newsmax, whether it was any of these other Republican papers. They kept harping on the fact that there were some deaths in the um, extraction of 120,000 people, right? These yeah. 13 or 12 people that unfortunately passed because of a suicide bomber. Yeah. First of all, you can't stop a suicide bomber, but they want to pin that on Biden's negligence. I mean, why don't we start talking about the two most dangerous parts about war? It's getting in and getting yeah. out. The fact yeah. that they moved so many people so quickly after Trump fucking bungled it during his, he made deals that were basically impossible, you know, to contend with 
Joe Biden's team managed to do what I would well, estimate as a very, very good job. I mean, a really good job. Was it 100% perfect? The answer to that is no, but it was damn close. But we, I mean, remember during the Benghazi hearings, I believe it was Kevin McCarthy. It might have been another Republican, but my memory is that it was Kevin McCarthy who, like, when they were asked, when he was asked, well, you know, you had 17 Benghazi hearings. Were they a success? And he goes, well, look what we did to Hillary's numbers. Like saying the quiet part aloud. This was all about trying to demonize and delegitimize de her ahead of the 2016 election. And so when they get come in, if they come in and gain control of the committees and the investigative process on um, the House and or Senate, they are they will look at, you know, see whether Biden wants to run again. Uh, and they will do everything they can to discredit Biden and the Biden administration. And at the same time, they will uh, look at any other possible nominees, whether it's Kamala Harris or whoever else might be out there. I don't know if Pete Buttigieg wants to run, and they'll start looking at the Department of Transportation. And you know who else has to should worry should be on this list? Unfortunately, is Dr. Anthony Fauci. Look at what yeah. they look what they've done to him. You know, I get I get you know I'm on all these Republican and conservative. Uh, uh, mailing lists, email lists, and I get stuff every day from Rand Paul and others saying that Dr. Fauci, you know, is a criminal and that he should be in jail, that he, you know, that 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 he's responsible for COVID somehow, that he's making millions of dollars off COVID, which he isn't. Yeah, I saw that too. Disclosure forms. And so uh, they have just been demonizing him to the extent, as he has said, he needs, you know, protection. His family needs protection from death threats, and so he's somebody, you know. You, are, you just think if you're Rand Paul, hell, I make. He makes all this money now just with email letters. Imagine if he could actually subpoena him and get a criminal referral against him. Yeah. So yeah. it's. Then, I mean, the whole and, thing is absolutely terrifying. And then you get the criminal referral. You send it to the Biden Justice Department. They don't do anything. And then you investigate the Biden, you know, Justice Department for not doing anything. Well, why don't they why don't they investigate, for example, Michael Horowitz, who when I was on television with uh, Alex Witt had um, Congressman Lou on. There's a letter from July of 2020 where right. Congressman Lou and Hakeem Jeffries were a uh, asked Michael Horowitz asked the OIG to open an investigation to the unconstitutional remand of me back to prison, and which was, of course, all orchestrated by Trump and done so by Bill Barr. 18 months goes by, not a word. Finally, the other day, literally two, three days ago, I posted it on my Twitter account. All of a sudden, what happens? He sends a letter. And now this is about three weeks now after that appearance by Ted Lieu and myself. Mm -hmm. Which is a non-acknowledgement acknowledgement. Oh, yeah, you know, we're sorry. We didn't. Yeah, we know it's 18 months. Uh, but it doesn't answer the question whether they're going to open up an investigation into the unconstitutional yeah. remand of an American citizen because I failed to re I refused to waive my First Amendment constitutional right. And I think that people need to take it more seriously because, again, it's part of the Trump two-plan playbook for turning America into an autocracy. But well, speaking I think, of which, you know... I think you're right. What's that? And, um, I remember what the judge said in that case. 
who raised questions yep. that this, you know, that you were remanded. It, he, we- the judge stated was Alvin K. Hellerstein that this is nothing shy of retaliation and that, you know, it's the retaliation that he's never seen before. But since we're talking about Russia and Ukraine, I want to ask you this. The Russian army has now close to 100,000 troops amassed at the Ukrainian border. How much of this latest incursion do you believe to be related to how Putin views the stability of the United States? Because I realize it's an open question, but what is someone like Putin thinking when he watches the January 6th insurrection and the continued erosion of democracy in this country? You think this is the reason why he's doing what he's doing? I don't think it's the reason why he's doing this, but I think it probably, and it's really hard to figure out what he thinks, but uh, but my guess would be that he looks at this and says, America is in a weaker position internally. And if it's in a weaker position internally, it makes it harder for it to work globally. And that could be to deal with allies and putting together a united front against uh, a, a Russian uh, pressure on Ukraine or an incursion or an invasion, and it could just you know, you know, it shows that we're 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 you know the government here or Biden might be somewhat distracted, and so I just think it just is a sign. It's a sign of weakness. It's a, and so he you know is someone who obviously tries to exploit you know all weaknesses. There's a great story about Angela Merkel. Uh, when she had a summit with him, I think she was at his dacha at his office or something. And I think it's well known or somewhat known that she has a phobia about dogs. And he made sure that his dogs, and maybe he brought them in for the occasion, were running around. So weakness, right? A point of weakness. Rather than, you know, and so if we're, pinned down here arguing if our government's not working on COVID or doing well, the economy's not doing well, and there's a lot of fight fighting in Congress, and there's a highly partisan atmosphere, he's smart enough to know that it will be hard for Biden to put together a united front here, which might be necessary to uh, stand up to Russian aggression. So I don't think that's why he does it. Um, I think he knows that if you look at Russia, if you look at Europe, that Europe's going to be, you know, have some divisions in it and differences and disagreements about how strong to be on sanctions, what to do with the with the pipeline. They have their internal differences, and so this is where the United States plays a role by trying to rope everybody together and come up with as strong a consensus position as possible. If the United States doesn't do that, whatever that position might be, then you know Europe remains a little bit more divided, and the response to to Putin is not as forceful. Okay, so David, you know, as I was saying, that the hour goes by very quickly. So I have one last question for you, and again, as per usual, it's a multi it's a multi response question. As the January sixth committee continues its investigation and it's connecting the dots. It's become clear that Donald Trump presided over a vast conspiracy to overturn the election. I, don't, I, I mean, I just don't see how anybody can argue that. 
And when his own people and the courts could not and would not deliver to him what he wanted, he chose the violence of the mob. So when the full story is finally delivered with all the evidence accumulated, do you believe it will have any effect on the nation? Or will those who are already outraged be more outraged and those who believe it's all a lie will continue to believe that it's a fucking lie? Is there anyone left to persuade? That's my question. That's a really good question. And that's really kind of at the nub of everything we talk about, Michael. You know, are we so divided these days? Have we become so divided along tribalistic lines, not even ideological that there can be no persuasion on matters of public policy, like what to do about climate change, or on matters of reality, truth and fiction, what happened, what didn't happen. Um, I, I was writing a piece today uh, about Ted Cruz pushing this crazy January 6th conspiracy theory that the FBI you know, orchestrated the January 6th attack to discredit Trump, that it was a deep state plot. And it's been debunked. And it's quite clear. And here's Ted Cruz, you know, from, you know, Harvard Law, wherever he went. He used to, you know, be a, 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 an attorney who practiced before the Supreme Court, considered to be a very intelligent guy, whatever you might think about him, out there just telling people things that are not true to raise campaign money and to whip up paranoia and to show that he's part of the Trump cult. Um, so, I mean... I went into journalism many <laughs> decades ago as a young man because I thought facts made a difference. That if you, you know, you know, I've always been on the progressive side, but I also thought that if people knew the truth, that they would more or less naturally see the world that I would like as I would like them to see, and that we would make actions communally and make things better. Uh, but as we see now, uh, persuading people, getting people to to believe things that they don't want to believe. Uh, is is a lot harder. And so I think the January 6th committee is doing, I think it's one of the best committees we've seen in a long time. It's doing a great job in putting out information, you know, getting information. They'll be telling more of the narrative, more of the story in hearings they hold, I think in the next, in the weeks to come and in whatever final report. And if, if there is anybody out there still withholding judgment, they will persuade those 17 people. Uh, but by and large, I, I think it's become really quite difficult to get people to see, well, let's say to acknowledge the truth. You know, I believe that Ted Cruz knows that January 6th was not orchestrated by, by the FBI. I believe that most of the Republicans um, who voted not to convict Donald Trump believe that what he did was wrong and that you shouldn't have, have allow a person like that to be president. And I'll tell you what I, and I'll tell so, you what I believe you know, there, on that, David. And, but, but, but finish the point. It's like, but, but there's a reason why they can't acknowledge these realities. And, and that's what's most. And I think that if we are so divided today as a nation that even with facts, even with truth, you can't persuade people that they are truths then I think that as a country, we're doomed. All right? I really do. I believe then that we would be doomed if these people have, it's so set into their mind 
these this misinformation, this disinformation campaign that's running around rampant out there, then I just don't know how we end up surviving as a country and prospering. And then just to answer one thing. I, I agree with that. Let, let me uh, let me add, you know, I'm not I'm not an optimist because my family will tell you, my friends. But let me just, you know, I agree with everything you just said. But let me just add one very, very, very teeny, tiny, slightly optimistic uh, caveat or note to that. And that is, if you look at the polling information out there, it's still a majority of Americans who believe the truth, that believe climate change is real, that believe Donald Trump has lied about ABC, that believe what, you know, the January 6th attack was bad. Now, the, what we're seeing is that, you know, if you take most most Republicans as not believing these things and not sticking to facts and accuracy, you have anywhere from 20 to 35 percent of the public that they're that are that are fact free, not reality based. And what we're seeing in the way our democracy democracy is structured and the way the media works these days, that 20 to 35 percent of the population can really do a pretty good job screwing it up for the rest of us. They can get in there. They can, you know, with gerrymandered districts and with rigging all sorts of rigging things, gain majority control in certain places. They can certainly prevent action with a Senate filibuster. They have disproportionate uh, power in the Senate because of the way the Senate is structured. So, um, you know, it's not a 50-50 proposition, truth versus not truth. It's more like 65-35-70-30. So that gives me an inkling or a quasi-inkling, a half an inkling of hope that if the 65, 70% of us are really, really smart in how we organize ourselves, we might just okay, have a Okay, well, I, I hope so because, again, this country is the greatest democracy in the world, and without us, the rest of the world, I think, is doomed as well. But, David, with that, I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you for your insight, for your, you know, for your great journalism. And just thank you for joining me today on Maya Culpa. My pleasure. And let me just ask people to look up my new newsletter and go to davidcorn.com. Davidcorn.com it is. I'm going to go look it up right now. David, thank you so much. And I will speak to you very soon, my friend. Always fun. Be well. You too. Thank you. And now for today's Maya Culpa. If there was ever a doubt that we're living through an authoritarian pooch, What's happening in Ukraine, along with the reaction from the American far right, should erase any doubts. I am reminded of the 2004 Philip Roth book, The Plot Against America. Roth writes of an alternate past where, on the eve of World War II, Charles Lindbergh defeats Roosevelt and becomes president based on his support for a truce and tacit support of Adolf Hitler. The historical Lindbergh was an isolationist who espoused a catchphrase that Donald Trump borrowed for his presidential campaign and for his inaugural address, America First. The fictional Lindbergh, like the actual Trump, expressed admiration for a murderous European dictator and his election emboldened xenophobes. In Roth's novel, A Foreign Power, Nazi Germany, meddles in an American election, leading to a theory that the president is being blackmailed. In real life, U.S. intelligence agencies investigated Trump's ties to Vladimir Putin and the possibility that a dossier of secret information called Compromat gives Russia leverage with his regime. 
The book later became a widely celebrated series on HBO, which aired right after Trump's inauguration. At the time, the series creator David Simon warned against drawing too many parallels between fictional Lindbergh and Donald Trump. But there was a sense that of wanting to give Trump the benefit of the doubt. The series aired before Charlottesville, before the Mueller report, before impeachment number one, and certainly before the January 6th committee. Nowadays, we know what we're dealing with, and it's much, much worse than anyone could have fucking predicted. People like Tucker Carlson have picked up Trumpism where it was left on the road, and they have connected Trumpism to these larger international right-wing power struggles. The fact that things have gone this far to the point where our lawmakers are locking arms with a Russian dictator at the behest of a fascistic talk show host is the stuff of fiction. Only it's not. It's fucking for real. And for those who said it can't happen here, well, they're waking up to an awful reality and are powerless to stop what's coming. Where we go from here is anyone's guess. I suggest you read the book. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. 